time. This is the You Are Not Listening to This Podcast. My name is Will James. And here's an epiphany I had once. I don't know why I said it that way. I didn't have it once. I had it over an extended period of time. Much effort. Consequence. But either way, I came to realize that biblical truths mirror societal values. And they continue to do so even as societal values change. And that it's not actually the other way around. Like the, the Bible's meanings do not change. The words are the words. But the people interpreting them do. The church, as much as we and I guess my generation were taught this express commitment to not be in the world, is not somehow separate from the societies that the church finds itself in. It's constructed from that society. It's interpreted by that society. And then that society upholds its conclusions as divine. Our perspectives, our motivations, our sense of self-preservation are these evolving filters that we seek truth through. Sometimes that leads to positive results. Sometimes it doesn't. And it appears to have worked like that, even while the Bible was being written in the thousands of years that transpired from Genesis to Revelations. It continues to work that way now, thousands of years later. The society that produced the books of First and Second Chronicles, this retelling of Israelite history after the return from Babylonian exile, they perceived an enemy, Satan, that the societies before them in the Torah, the judges, and the Samuel King's eras did not. The society that informed Augustine gave us original sin, not Moses, not Paul, the time and society that informed Dante shaped our popular conceptions of hell, not the prophets or the epistles, not the words of God, and not realizing this, not, not understanding the difference between trapping oneself within an interpretation of scripture as opposed to allowing interpretation to continue, leaves us, again, for lack of better terms, forcing new wine into old wineskins. <laughs> Why? Why would I say that? <laughs> you don't need a new wineskin either. Just grab a glass. Stay for a minute. Oh, my puppy wants to come up. Can you guys hold on for one second? I'm going to grab my puppy. Correction, uh, my dog does not want to come hang out. He was just hungry, <laughs> wanted some food, didn't want it where he usually eats it. It was a fun time guessing where in the house he wanted his food bowl today. <sighs> I love that dog, but he's stressful. Where was I? Right, moral truths. Moral truths of the Bible change with time. <laughs>
<laughs> I know, I know, but here we are, right? So, for instance, let's look at it this way. I think we can all agree that most nations, whether they're affected by Judeo-Christian moral codes or not, have come to understand that slavery is a moral evil. People are not property. Or rather, you can't profess to view someone as equal and also treat them like property. Disposable. Like the two don't go together. We understand it, and not necessarily instinctively. We've come to this through experience. Horrific trial and error. However, we perceive our own American moral codes as being based on the Bible, or at least semi-Christianized thought. But, slavery is not something that's banned in the Bible. Master-slave relationship was regulated through the First Testament. It wasn't forbidden. Slaves are commanded to obey their masters in the Second Testament. And despite that, something about how humanity reads the arc of both Testaments together has led to this once completely cultural norm becoming an objective evil. It's so evil that in its rawest form it is apparently too dangerous for American children to learn about in schools anymore. It would harm their psyches to know the truth of what built this nation in the past. But at the same time, the evils of slavery are reevaluated when you repackage them in the present within prison systems for bad people. Because again, you, you can't profess to view someone as equal and treat them as property or disposable. But if you find other categories to view them, societal values shape our moral truths. And, and on this topic, I recently heard a sermon where a pastor was trying to deflect the idea that the Bible condones the practice of slavery by saying that it, it was really all about providing work for people that needed it, to provide a pathway out of financial hardship. And to that end, we today are all still in slavery if we owe enough money at the end of the month to not be able to quit our jobs. He actually said, if you have to work to pay for your debts, then you right now are a slave. <laughs> now, this wasn't even what the sermon was about. So it was an interesting tangent. It was wild for me to hear a man say, choosing to have a mortgage on your home with a bank and then having the freedom to work anywhere you'd like to pay it off was really no different than forced free labor, whether it was supposed to end after six years or not. And then to try to say that that system of work exchange is what the Bible is suggesting was happening in ancient times, not what we think of slavery today. He literally presented slavery as a decent biblical economic system of allowing people to get themselves out of poverty that only got messed up as humanity's increasing sinfulness kept their hands on it. Like, God created the perfect slavery system and humans just abused it. Yet, the rules for God's perfect slavery system come after the Israelites needed his supernatural intervention, the likes of which have never been witnessed before or since, to escape the bondage of Egyptian slavery in Exodus. Seems like it was a bad thing already. 
the pastor was being an idiot. But it shows how some people will twist logic far beyond its flexibility to keep a certain picture of God and a perfect Bible in their hands. And I think old Pastor Hector's problem is that it's difficult to believe and envision a loving God would condone the enslavement of our fellow humans, whatever the reasoning. But just because that's difficult doesn't mean you get to twist the reasoning. Trust me. It's particularly difficult for me as an African-American man who sees the ugliness of slavery scars in my direct bloodlines. And at the same time, the holy book that we learn about a loving God from, at least in various places, seems quite okay with the practice. 400 years of future slavery was in the promise Yahweh makes to Abraham. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph of multicolored coat fame, who's given the gift of prophetic interpretation, well, he uses that by the help of God, which then brings all 12 of the brothers back together in Egypt, directly leading to that predicted enslavement, that promised enslavement. Upon freeing those promised descendants from 400 years of Egyptian captivity, God then gives Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God's perfect law to be established forever, which includes an acceptance of slavery. And the almighty fourth commandment, the bridge between the relationship of love from God to man and then from man to man. In that commandment we see, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, thy maidservant, cattle, or strangers that are within thy gates. Then in the next chapter, which is a continuation of rules after the ten, that's all about how the Hebrews should treat Hebrew slaves. Understand what I'm saying. Chapter divisions are man-made and create, well, I mean, the whole thing's man-made, but chapter divisions are later additions, right? So when you're reading through Exodus, the Ten Commandments are given out loud. God's speaking out loud. This is not the writing them on the tablets moment. The people get afraid of the voice and the thunder and the lightning, and they tell Moses, hey, man, we're done with this. Why don't you go talk to God by yourself? Come back and tell us what he says. God was not done speaking when that happened. Exodus 21 is a continuation of the rules that are given at the same time as the Ten Commandments. They're not part of the Ten Commandments. I'm not trying to say that they are. I'm saying they're being given at the same time. And in those rules, there was not a moment where inspiration said, hey, y'all, you just did 400 years of slavery. You shouldn't do that to anybody. Instead, they were given instructions from God on how to manage and treat Hebrew slaves that they own themselves. God frees them, then immediately condones them enslaving themselves? Not some tribe that they're going to conquer on the way. Not some captured Egyptian soldiers that made it through the Red Sea themselves. The rules were you can keep them for six years, but you got to let them go free in the seventh. Unless they're a woman, in which case you can keep her. Now, if you give a male slave a wife and they have children, you still have to free him in the seventh year but you get to keep his wife and those kids. Unless, of course, he swears his allegiance to you to remain your slave for his entire life. Then he can keep his wife and kids, but he has to remain 
enslaved by you. You can beat them with rods with no consequences whatsoever so long as after a couple of days they can walk again. Now these rules, in quotation marks, attributable to Yahweh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, there are situations where an Israelite can keep another Israelite in servitude for life. But in Leviticus, not only must an Israelite in your service be freed in the Jubilee year, no matter what, that enslavement can only serve the purpose of raising them out of property. You can't just have a slave because you want one. And when you did this with a fellow Israelite, they could not be subjected to the treatment of a slave, which kind of lays a foundation for what slaves were treated like, you know. So for those keeping track, Leviticus falls between Exodus and Deuteronomy. So the nice slavery of which Pastor Hector was pulling wasn't the final word even in the Torah. Now, God does seem pretty anti-Israelite slavery by the time of Solomon, the building of the temple, but the enslavement of outsiders was still fair game, hence the temple got built. American slaveholders, dissatisfied with all of those biblical green lights, made up their own, from the mark of Cain, to Noah's curse on his grandson, from phantom beasts of the field, we talked about that, to potentially the unnatural amalgamation of man and beast, as dear Ellen White seemed to suggest when she said that since the flood there has been amalgamation of man and beast, which she mentioned before, were species that were confused that God did not create. And that you can see this in the almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of men. She didn't say specifically which races of men she thought were unnatural amalgamations of man and beast. But you can probably guess. The glorious Church of England which produced the King James Bible, was gifted to the world in 1611. That was just in time for the deep run of the Atlantic slave trade. Still, that same book has been used and was used by abolitionists and slaveholders both to make their arguments. And while white Christians in the North and the South viewed themselves as a new Israel and a new promised land, which you know justified slavery and the genocide of the indigenous, the Africans that they enslaved and colonized with that religion recognized them both as the new Egypt, whether they held the whip or the word in their hands. Same book, different cultures, different society. Today's American Christians live in a world where slavery is objectively morally wrong, though you can still find some that disagree. But generally speaking, it's divinely wrong because we feel that to be true. It must be true about a loving God. But he would hate the practice, even though we can't actually make a solid, infallible biblical argument to support that. The evil of it is just too obvious. Biblically, historically, that truth changed because society's feelings did. Most religious stances are tied to feeling. They're not tied to the text. We care about the text when it will justify the feeling that we want to have a religious stance. 
We ignore the rest. Person yelling the loudest at the city hall meetings about their religious belief. The ones acting out the most feeling will never actually quote any scripture. They rarely know any outside of John 3.16, a couple lines of Leviticus, probably something from Isaiah, and no good context for even those. It's just, as a Christian, I'm against fill-in-the-blank. And that's informative, maybe. But if you have the time to iron your most likely very patriotic outfit and drive down there and take that podium with your little loose-leaf notes, at least bring the thing that you believe is authoritative with you. The ones that do kind of know what they're doing or what they're arguing are selective with the texts they use. This is the position I have always been in. Take the topic of hell. In Adventism, we are annihilationists. Hell is not a current reality for anyone, a future possibility for everyone that is limited in time. You burn till you burn up. Annihilationists believe the words of the biblical text that suggest hell is then limited in duration. We believe those are literal. Annihilationists then ignore the texts that the eternal conscious torment crowd believes that are literal, that describe an eternal punishment. Both those schools of thought dismiss all the universalist texts that suggest the reconciliation of everybody. Where's the fun in that, right? It's not about the words in the Bible because all three ideas are represented. It's picking and choosing. It's feeling and the elevation of the words that will support that. That is what Pastor Hector was dealing with when he ignored the slavery of Exodus and Deuteronomy to present some godly ideal of slavery from Leviticus. It's not the only word of the last word, but it is the one that worked for the point he wanted to make. I'm tired. I'm sorry of picking on old Pastor Hector. It's not him. He's an example. Christianity in general is just odd like that. All right, let's let's switch gears. Mild trigger warning, okay? The biggest American conservative Christian talking point today. Especially with what's going on in Texas is how much God hates abortion, right? It's evil. It's a sin. Murder. Hell. It's become a sin in the eyes of American evangelicalism to vote for someone who has supported pro-choice legislation. That's where we're at. Our Christianity. But if you read Numbers 5 all the way through, you realize, huh, this is God giving priestly instructions on how Israel is to perform chemical abortions in every case of a married woman's suspected infidelity. Yikes. And you flip over to Hosea 9 and you're like, wait, this is a prayer to God to perform supernatural abortions, cause miscarrying wombs and dry breasts. Well, now we're throwing infanticide in. Can your God prescribe evil and sin? Can you righteously pray for evil and sin to be commenced by God? I can see how you could say being anti-choice is biblical. 
tons of evidence of women being robbed of their agency in the Bible in many forms. But a divine mandate to terminate any and all out-of-wedlock pregnancies? Not exactly pro-life, guys. So what is the clear biblical understanding of God's stance on the unborn? He may know you in your mother's womb, that may also be where he wipes you out. Had a bit of a thing for taking people's firstborn back in the day as well. All of Job's kids were completely disposable and replaceable. Are yours? You aren't even blameless and upright. What's interesting, and the argument you've likely heard a million times, is that humanity's collective responsibility toward other humans after they're born, like a duty to the poor, the sick, the differently abled, culturally unfamiliar, wrongfully accused, unjustly imprisoned, that's much more biblically defined. But today, it's those duties that popular Christianity somehow views as much more open to interpretation. Love your neighbor? Well, what does love really look like when my neighbor is like that? I mean, who is my neighbor, right? I'm talking to myself. Like, I, I have to keep interjecting. I'm talking to me earlier. And I know that guy back there, back then, accepted a lot of wild stuff for the sense of certainty. And up here in the current, in this weird deconstructed space where the familiar comforts of certainty are nowhere to be seen the need to defend my beliefs just gave way to an interest in truly understanding them where did they come from comparing them with others why have I held mine what has that said about me the boundaries that I place on spirit grace and love and what I thought of the people I was willing to place on the outside of that so I had lots of questions. What were the options other than Adventism, fundamentalism, literalism, historicism, inerrancy, the spirit of prophecy? What motivated my tribe to make the choices that they had made? What assumptions were they working under? And how many of them were as plain and clear as I'd been told they were over the years? That's not fun work, by the way. <laughs> and the thing that stuck out to me the most in studying these choices was a consistent hostility towards any other known schools of thought. Like the options are not open. There was the right one and a bunch of wrong ones that are all attributable to Satan's desire to confuse God's people and keep them from the truth. There's no truth in them, so don't even waste your time. We've got it over here. Anything else will just be confusing. And 
What's weird about that is the stuff that we talked about were, was so commonly the things that are widely openly debated because of how um, difficult the translations are, or, uh, the access to manage, like just a slew of reasons. For, okay, for instance, I grew up under the assumption that obviously uh, we had Daniel and Revelation completely nailed. Okay, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation absolutely were speaking to current times, not the audiences that those books were written to thousands of years ago and several hundred years apart from each other. That these two books were God laying out a blueprint of every empire that would ever exist, that even the rise of America as a superpower, all the way up to the second coming, is in these two books. If you read them and bounce them off each other, appropriately. Daniel paints the broad roadmap. John fills in the gaps and brings the keys to unlock things. Jesus, the star of both sets of writings, even though it'd be centuries after Daniel before Jesus even became a thing that any humans, including Daniel, knew about. I knew that the seven churches that John was writing, those were a chronological list of the phases the believers of God would go through from John's day leading up to the second coming the last of which being the Church of Laodicea, full of lukewarm, apathetic fundamentalists, which, think about that for a second. Fundamental, apathetic, anyway. I didn't know that among other options, other than the phases of the Christian church, that the seven churches in Revelation are actually seven real communities that John was literally referencing. Whether he was using them for a future metaphor or whatever, I mean, whatever, I didn't even know that. I didn't know that the name for what I was doing, how I was taught to read prophecy, was called historicism. I didn't know it had a name. I just thought that was the truth. I learned that it was called historicism by a denominational thing telling me how bad and satanically influenced preterism, futurism, and idealism are. And I didn't know what any of those were either. <laughs> I didn't know that with preterism, biblical scholars suggest that apocalyptic literature is a genre that's not so much predicting the events of the future, but are coded writings intended to engender hope in the people it was written for, living in occupied territory, without directly alarming those in power around them. Like apocalyptic is a genre very similar to old Negro spirituals. Filled, figurative language, metaphor, that the audiences that handled them immediately would have clearly understood, while those of us in our day could only attempt educated guesses because we don't have all the keys. Those books serve as sources of wisdom for the generation since, as opposed to predictions for some generation still in the future. That's preterism. It's a thought process where we today don't have something they had yesterday. The idea that God gave those people a word that would bring comfort in their time. And when I looked up preterism and Adventism, I found thesis after thesis about how only historicism can be viewed as supported by scripture, 
and every other doctrine is anathema to Adventism. By the way, I just want to throw this in here. Idealism is the idea that both are true. And Adventism is against idealism? Which is why it's wild. It's wild to suggest, no, this can only have a meaning now. It couldn't have had a meaning then. I can understand that idealism is a little bit idealistic. <laughs> but to rule it out so that you can say, it doesn't matter. That's not where we're going. My point is, is this, this seemed to be a common answer for most questions. If, if whatever other school of thought is true, then some aspect of Adventism would fall apart. Therefore, that other thing can't be true, because Adventism is. But it never seemed to, to hinge on things that would upend the gospel entirely. Or take away your belief in Jesus, or deny the existence of of something divine at work on earth. It was just, this would cause a problem for the sanctuary doctrine, or the 1844 message, or absolute certainty. This would cause some problem in being able to say specifically that today is definitely one of the last days. It was self-preservation that were the reasons we were making so many of these choices. It wasn't belief in the Bible. It was belief in the movement. But what about the movements that came before it? I mean, Adventism claims that preterism is new. Historicism is the older, more reliable, interpretive choice. And I guess, from a Christian church perspective, that's true. That the, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, playing out in part ever since they were written and continuing to unfold present and future truths today, like that's a pretty common Christian notion. It's not necessarily Adventist-specific. I'm not trying to claim we're the only historicists. And I imagine that that has been taught scholarly longer than preterism um, because the way it plays out with Rome and the Reformation, like we kind of, you can see it. But it can't actually be the older thought. I mean, think about it for a second. Not what's getting taught in Bible schools. Who cares about the timeline there? If you're a historicist, historicist, it doesn't matter if you land where Adventists land or not. If Daniel and Revelation are talking about you and me today only, then think about how many years the writings of Daniel had to be protected and preserved by countless generations of people that you are arguing had no idea what it meant at all and if they did, knew it didn't mean anything for thousands of years. And they couldn't have known if it was unfolding as it was predicted. They couldn't have tested it to find out if it was true. Yet, they respected the idea that this Daniel guy said God was showing him things. So much so as to include them in their holy book. But they never once understood anything he wrote. They couldn't have. They just assumed, based on nothing, that God would eventually make some of it start to make sense to someone. So let's just memorize it and make copies and preserve it forever. Then hundreds of years later, a guy comes along, claims that eh, maybe some of it now does start to make sense. Like John the Revelator. 
But then John again would be writing only to a far future audience as well. So he's like, I know what it means, but it still doesn't mean anything for us now. And it never meant anything for them. Then it'll mean something for people ahead of time. And not only do the Jewish people at that time that have been preserving Daniel without understanding any of it, not only do they hear John's new stuff and say, nah, we're going to ignore him too without having some other understanding to lean on. But John didn't know what he was talking about either. And nor did the people that preserved revelations in perpetuity until whoever it was in your denominational timeline that figured out what it really means. And that, for almost everybody, was somewhere in the 1800s. William Miller, Ellen White for Adventists' worldviews. C.I. Schofield scared a whole bunch of the rest of you with how he interpreted in Revelations. But that's what we're, that's what we're arguing. That historicism is a thought process where we have something today that they couldn't have had yesterday and that God gave those people a word to bring me comfort and not even really me, comfort in a still future time that I was simply convinced I would be alive for. But so was the generation in the 1800s that believed it. And they're all long dead. Which begs the question, why do we believe God's process is to give his followers a word that they can't understand or respond to, but they need to keep it alive and protected long enough so that now the whole game is how fully we respond and understand it? And to what end? Like, seriously, to what end? If, if, if Daniel isn't about a pre-advent judgment, and it isn't, about a cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary from the sins of the saints starting in 1844. And if Revelation wasn't about a big battle between God and mankind that a bunch of your friends and loved ones will be getting slaughtered at soon enough, does that mean you can't maintain a hope for an advent, for resurrection, for new life? Does that mean there's no God that you're not loved or forgiven or accepted as you are? No, it just means that maybe the Bible doesn't say all the things you thought it did. That you are in a status of not knowing everything. Like every other generation of human beings ever. Congratulations, welcome to life. If any little interpretive change crumbles your entire belief system, it's probably not a good system of belief. Again, I'm talking to myself. So, guy, back then, <laughs> that would hate hearing this. You're going to ask me a question, well, what do I think of the Bible? I'm going to tell you, as you know, guy, we grew up wholeheartedly believing that the Bible was fully the God-breathed word of truth, divine truth, historical truth, truth with a capital T, written by human hands, but... Every word, I can't stress that enough, every word selected by the Holy Spirit directly, intentionally, that even though Moses would have lived through a good chunk of the Torah, he still had to sit and have it dictated effectively to him. Hence, all the use of the third person. None of it's contradictory in any way, shape, or fashion, as God oversaw the authorship 
the oral history, the writing, the copying, the editing, accumulating, and the translating processes. The processes of weeding out things for canonization and preserved it inerrant and infallible. The Bible's still on my bedside table. Still read it. Quote it. I believe in the Bible. Just not like that. I think in the same way that we were talking about just earlier, about social motivations moving things and changing how we view the book, I I think that's what the book is. I think humanity has always had big questions. What is this experience that we're in? And for reasons that may or may be supernatural or otherwise, a story told by a people group known as the Israelites outlasted many of the other stories. Something about the source of this isness in their story has resonated with significant portions of humanity as it has changed over the centuries. That is undeniable. Now, that may be because the story simply is true. It's the word of God. Fine. It may be, though, the imperfections of the heroes in the stories themselves or the persistent second and third chances given along the way, the ebbing and flowing, the wrestling with truth. It may be the comparative character of God presented in it. It may be that it was simply presented as the most rational with the public support at key points in history and championed by the victors of battle and empire. Who knows? If the Bible tends toward truth, in that if there is indeed some grand architect of this experience, it would make sense to me at least that such an architect, such an existence, would want to be made known or its presence would be unable to be completely hidden. Like whatever is more than this may also be all of this and such a supersaturating isness couldn't be collectively denied. So many people and many civilizations around the world forever and always have believed there's something more. That experiences with something more. And they had them even in the religions that you don't believe are real. And if that something more wants to be known and we conscious beings desire to know it or at least more of it, how might that manifest itself? As we humans told stories, governed ourselves with rules, agreed to behave along moral codes, and began to attempt to explain our origins, humanity made many gods, M-A-N-Y, The stories that lasted, told by the cultures that won out, felt the most true and holy and divine to whoever was involved in those processes, became holy scriptures in your part of the world. Which may be a different set of holy scriptures from my part of the world. Inspiration, then, from a human perspective of understanding, 
is more a metric of human response to these stories as opposed to the authority of the source or origin of those stories. The only provable difference between writings and inspired writings is human consent. Now, it's probably hard to see in the macro here in America because the Bible is so pervasively intertwined with Westernized civilization that you can't think outside of those scriptures. But as an Adventist, let me, let me give you a more specific example. Like I talked about last time, we had an extra prophet, prophetess, actually. And as a denomination, as a denomination, we consented to the belief that Ellen White's writings were inspired to the same degree and quality as the scriptures. Not an addition, you know, that's an argument. <laughs> but then we chose to hold ourselves captive by them. What she said now is elevated to a place where she speaks authoritatively for what God meant in the Bible, which we believed were expressly the words of him. Now, we also were taught that technically people unfamiliar with the truths of Ellen White's writings were not held to their standard because God only holds you accountable to the truth that you have made available to yourself. This is effectively a workaround, in my opinion, so that Adventists don't have to feel infinitely guilty about their very religious, good Christian, non-Adventist family members and friends who they never went over. But, if this is true, if it's true that the requirement to, requirement's a bad word, but the, well, screw it, the obligations presented by the writings of Ellen White, the truths in her writings, are not held against you until you know about them, then those truths are not fundamental to the Christian walk or relevant to the Christian idea of salvation. They only become so if you choose to consent to the authority the Adventist church is telling you they have. Your response to an Adventist determines the truth, authority, validity, and necessity of the writings of Ellen White. So while God could reveal all that is necessary for salvation through the breeze to the isolated illiterate, I would require more of that person once I hand him the great controversy. So from that perspective, the truth of the Bible lies within the stories it tells. Insofar as those stories inform the reader throughout the centuries as to who God is in a way the reader internally senses as true and authentic and morally above reproach. It convicts you. If it doesn't, then who's to say it was true? So, I know that's abstract, but for the Adventist, that has to resonate a little bit. But something... Something about the Eden narrative, right, feels valuable to our chosen way of viewing the world and our origins, that there's an ideal and perfection 
and then there's failure and loss, but hope for redemption. That story speaks to us, it resonates. More so than the similar origin stories that predate it. But those stories exist and do predate it. You understand? Like, I think the Eden narrative points to something or several things. I just don't think the narrative is the something. I don't necessarily believe the truth of the Bible or the stories themselves, what the stories have told us and are telling us over time. The Bible is an attempt. It's an argument. Here is what we think God is like. I don't think the Bible is complete. Not that it needs more to be written in it. I do not think that. I just got rid of 100,000 pages of it. (laughs) If you know what I mean. I mean, it incompletely describes what it intends to describe. It would not have been possible from the original writer's cultural context and perspectives to view God and the world and each other even the way good, strict, fundamentalist Christians do. Nor could they see it the way a former fundamentalist, ex-Adventist, I'm not sure what I believer, like me, does. It's also incomplete in that no one that wrote the individual portions of the Bible knew that that's what they were doing in the first place. Like, to view the Bible the way me and the dude from back then viewed it, it was as if the Bible is simply a tra- chapter book that God gave out chapters slowly over time, and that the story eventually tells a complete story. That's a really big way of looking at something, because the author of Genesis didn't have Second Chronicles, Malachi, or Revelation in mind and in the beginning. The Torah ends. Right? Like, it doesn't pause. It ends. Like, what we have, it's Legos. Um, Jesus. God was different things to these different people at different times. They behaved in different ways. It doesn't matter how many times we say God is unchanging. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The book you get that idea from says that he crushed enemies sometimes and he redeemed them other times. He was patient sometimes and a harsh disciplinarian others. He was forgiving and then he would punish to the third and fourth generation. He was steadfast. He was negotiable. Even within the Torah, all attributed to Moses, God has a body at times and walks around humans in the garden even after the tree. Then God has a body, but no one can see it and live. But Moses got to see them cakes. Then God has a body, but it remains in heaven, always, and only messengers are ever sent to earth. Then God lives in heaven with a body, but sometimes comes to the mountain, sometimes will come to the temple. Sometimes he's bodiless in that cloud or fire or has a presence over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus kind of has a debate about this with the woman at the well, with that whole, hey, we worship God at the mountain. Y'all worship God in the temple. Who's right? Don't worry about it, because now we worship in spirit and in truth. That, you know, which is, to me, saying you're asking the wrong question. Maybe this is something else to you. What seems to be common in that book is the belief that God, whatever that is, is or will always be there. Failure after failure, 
seems to deliver eventually, no matter what we seem to do. Not always individually, but on the collective. Like, the sun rises, another day dawns. We eat another meal, we push humanity forward. We live and die and replace ourselves. But that story is told and unfolds over thousands of years. It's not like a horoscope or fortune cookie. It's wisdom. These are not quick fixes. The Bible's value is not in its truths being stagnant and memorized and dogmatic. The reason that I believe in it is not about passing a test of faith. That kind of belief isn't faith to me anymore anyway. I believe in furthering the attempt. I believe in the Bible enough to wrestle with why I don't believe what I don't in it, and what that says about where inspiration is moving humanity to. Not because I'm personally special or in some other space, but because whatever space I find myself in, I am not by any means alone out here. And this book that has lasted for so long lasts because the people out here and out there and over there and in there continue the debate. The more of us that begin to see and address the problems in the Bible and how it is read now for our times and how it has been read traditionally. And the more of us that realize that our traditions are limited in time to our context, meaning our traditional view of scripture is different than the traditions that came before us how historicism looks older than preterism, but it probably can't be. Which also means it will be different after our time. The more of us that realize these things, the more likely we are to be shaping how these truths continue to grow, how they shape the human experience, for better or for worse. But it is happening. It is happening. And for some people it looks scary, it looks destructive, it looks like an attack for others it looks like birthing pains it looks like hope it looks like the truth we were reading out of this thing has a chance if we can get out of the way with our tight grips and if that requires that many of us just let go completely so be it When the Bible is looked at as the thing, instead of an attempt at the thing, we scare ourselves into becoming reliant on other people to tell us what it means. We critique those who disagree, we demonize them, and we shame ourselves when we fall short in some way. When the Bible becomes a definite thing that must be understood or else, instead of a pathway to understanding, barriers fly up. And that feels safe on the inside. You know, a fortress's walls shield you from violent winds. But they also block the calming flow of a breeze. I don't know where I got that from. I got that from somewhere. So to answer your question, old guy, young guy what is the bible to me it's kind of difficult to define right so imagine something 
Imagine waking up, no idea where you are, how you got there, but there's a long rope in your hands, and that rope runs along the middle of a dark, dark, tunnel-like space. And you, you tug on the rope, and you can tell it's tethered to something at both ends. You just can't see either end. If the tunnel is horizontal, like a hallway, then your journey along the rope is going to be filled with intrigue and inquiry. Like, what's at the end of the rope? Which direction leads out? Does either lead out? What, what is this? Who put this rope here? Why this type of rope? Is it significant? Why this type of braid? Is this the most practical type of rope? How long is this rope? Who else has found this rope? Or am I the first one? Should I leave it here? Like, what did, what did they do when they got here? Hmm. I guess as long as I can touch the rope, I'm probably somewhere on the right path. And these questions, they don't necessarily need answers. They don't have answers, maybe, because you'll never find some of them. If that tunnel, though, is vertical, like a mine shaft or a well, then your journey along that rope changes. It's different. And so are the questions. How long can I hold on? Can I climb out at the end of the rope? How far will I fall if I let go? Will I survive that fall? I sure hope this rope is strong enough to support my, my weight. Am I disciplined enough, conditioned enough not to give up on this climb once I start it? Now, these questions do need answers or you're never going to feel safe. But the rope has no individual intrigue. Its relevance is relative to its ability to save you. Its composition doesn't matter as long as it won't break, even if it's rough on the hands and starts tearing them up. Who put it there or why doesn't matter as long as you don't let go. If anyone else doesn't want to climb this rope, that's on them. They can take their chances. You're preoccupied. Your hands are full. And that's what I think of the Bible. And no, I can't give you some kind of cheesy Christian apologetic over here. I can't say it was grace and sacrifice for Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit that turned my mind shaft into a hallway. And I'm not going to say that just because I faintly hear a euphemism being born. I'm saying this was a conscious choice that I made over years of existential struggle. Nobody gave me authority or a pass or permission. I called it an epiphany. It wasn't one. And this was never the goal. There's no bright light to change the perspective. Death by a million paper cuts or rope burns. Either way, I just think that if humanity has stumbled upon any truths and that those truths could include a loving God, then it's not one that would have us dangling for our lives like that. If it is, then I'll just make the best of the fall. Otherwise, I'll be just down the hall enjoying the This is the You Are Not Listening to this podcast. I love you. You know it.